All it takes is a click to listen to RTI online. Get exercise for your finger and exercise for your mind at english.rti.org.tw. This is Radio Taiwan International. Up ahead this hour, we bring you Lights, Camera, Asia, and In the Spotlight. But first up today, it's Here in Taiwan. Hello and welcome to Here in Taiwan. Today is Thursday, November 7th. I'm John Van Trieste, and joining me here in the studio today, we've got Jake Chen. Hello. And Leslie Liao. Hello, everybody. Up ahead, next, Taiwan's recycling scavengers tier a new recycling subsidy. Then, can smartwatches be used to cheat in school? And Taiwan's first pilot finally gets the biography he deserves. All that coming up next. Please stick around. to global recycling metrics, Taiwan always seems to be doing pretty well. And now, thanks to a new recycling subsidy, it seems like we're doing even better than ever before. Yeah, so what happens here is that the Environmental Protection Administration, the EPA, they uh, they went ahead and they increased the subsidies for people who collect garbage or collect recyclables uh, from the street or from public garbage cans. And uh, that has allegedly tripled the amount of recycling that, um, that's been brought in wow. from these sources over the past three months. That is incredible. Yeah, so what happens is the EPA says uh, around 8,900 people rely on this way to you know, make a living or buy a meal. That's not a very um, profitable place way of, of uh, making a living, I should it's say. It's not. But... It's not. They say on average you can make about uh, 3500 uh, per month through this program now. Or, and then uh, additionally... That's not a great living, but I guess it's you can survive on You it. can subsist, I'm yeah. guessing. That's like new Taiwan dollars, right? Yeah, new Taiwan yeah, dollars. Yeah. Roughly 120 okay. bucks a year. Yeah. And I'm, but, but it seems, what surprises me about this is that I always assume that they just wait around when the trash truck, the recycling truck comes and like take your recycling for you. They do do they, that. They <laughs> tend to, I've, there's one woman near where I live who like hangs out around the corner before it comes mm-hmm. and like... You don't want tired of waiting? Here, I'll just take it. I'll and take then, it for you. And then that becomes, I guess, I don't, again, I don't know how much you can expect to make on average, but if it's 35000 that's, yeah. I mean, they're, they're not starving. She's, uh, well, that lady's about to get a little more voracious, John, because mm. they raised the prices on uh, 12 types of recycling waste, recyclable waste. So they raised the amount of money that the government gives you for whatever you bring in. For example, Paper-made containers rose from 1.4 New Taiwan dollars per kilogram to 18. That's so, quite an inc- increase, even though 18 won't get you anything. Uh, um, per kilogram, though, yeah, that's that's almost like a 10, 12 times yeah. Yeah, of what you get. Plastic containers, they go from 5 New Taiwan dollars to 12 New Taiwan dollars, so mm. that's almost double. Yeah. Although that is over double. And uh, old computer keyboards, if you guys have any old computer keyboards, keep this in mind, because they went from one new Taiwan dollar to 30 new Taiwan dollars. So when I need a raise, I know what to do. <laughs> so if you... Plenty of those upstairs. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Do we have a computer graveyard upstairs? 
Uh, you know, I'm referring to my own computer. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, mine too, right? So what happened was uh, the first month of the subsidy increased. You got 32 tons of uh, garbage. Then we got 77 tons, 117. And then last month we got 123 tons. From recycl- just these recyclings? From just these, these recycling scavengers? establishments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say, I'm sorry, uh, the like, sort of the per unit uh, reward might not be too high, but the item that you mentioned, like plastic bottles and, and you know, these are... All, all over the place if you look yeah so it's uh yeah i don't know maybe they should like that should be our new recycling system because i sure hate having to go out at a certain time and then like if you're busy or something and you miss it you just have to like wait for at oh. least at least a day if not more depending yeah if it's like a holiday then it's even it's terrible forget it man so we're racing should... a, uh, against a bunch of uncles and <laughs> yeah. so basically i mean maybe they should like outside of every building just have a place and you know what collect it whenever you want take it off our hands like i said she uh, provides a living the lady might be knocking on your door now john she I might maybe. not be waiting for you hmm. Well, back in my day, we only had flip phones, and that was a big concern. But now there's any number of uh, devices on kids. And uh, the latest one to spark concerns about cheating in schools seems to be the smartwatch. Now, they've been around for a while. Why is this just just coming out now? Yeah, this is uh, a little bit surprising to me as well when I saw the news. So basically, uh, a mother posted a a photo of her son's smartwatch on one of those uh, those, uh, places where you complain on the on facebook <laughs> taiwan has a fair number of those oh many <laughs> yeah we'd like to complain online it's like our version of uh, workrant.com right although we do also um do post like scandalous things and things that people should be made aware of as well yeah so it's not just complaining anyway i digress right so uh so she posted a photo of uh, her son's smartwatch and saying that uh her son was taught to by another mother of, of his classmate saying that, you know, the, 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 whatever it is you're wearing, you know, could be used for cheating and you shouldn't wear that to school. And the mom said, why don't you do your research before you, you know, before you talk to my son like that? So clearly she was uh, not pleased uh, about the latest conversation. Hmm. And that sort of the post got a lot of people talking. There's a, a, a few dozen um, responses within a few hours of her posting. Uh, and a bunch of people liked and give different faces to that. Uh, talking about the possibility or sort of the the impossibility of cheating with smartwatches. I don't have one of those. Uh, apparently, you're. I a, have one. You're the yeah. only one here who does. Um, uh, can you cheat with it? Tell us all. I can't really think of it because what happens is it relays information from your phone to your watch, but that's only for like notifications and stuff like that. There's no like notes or anything in here. I I can technically send you like notes to your phone that you can see on your watch, can't you? Yeah, you can. Okay. You but can, that but... would require you to take out your phone, which is much more obvious. No, he doesn't have to. He can watch you to read it directly from oh, your phone. Okay. But the thing is, there's also a character limit. So it'll show me like maybe the first hundred characters of a text. Okay. And then it'll be like, open up your phone to see, you know? <laughs> well, so on a multiple choice test, though, you could A, B. That's not very many characters unless it's a very, very long multiple choice that test. That is true. You could a, go B, far C, with a hundred characters. B, B. It would be a continuous. On Jake you would having... have to keep having to look at your phone, your watch, though. I mean, and uh, that would also get pretty obvious. Yeah. Like, why do you, you need to stare to at s- it? See the time so often. Yeah. It's like, gee, you know, this taste, this test is taking forever, man. I thought time <laughs> would go faster. So, right. so there's that. Um, that's pretty primitive, though, as far as yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think. I mean, I just I don't quite like the sort of the other mother and how she expresses her concern. You know, if you are concerned, talk to the teacher, right? Or yeah. So like, you don't have to address the kid directly. So. That is a bit, well, it's take a bit overbearing. Your, take your qualms to the internet. Yeah. It's a bit overbearing, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. So what, what are people saying? Is there a consensus about whether it's... 
Okay, it, it's highly divisive. And like, I'm surprised um, schools allow these things. We had to be very careful about back in my day taking uh, yeah. our little flip phones out. You know, same here. Um, I don't think schools will, will allow any intelligent devices like consumer devices at exams. But I don't see wearing this stuff will be any problem. Like, clearly, the other mother who complained doesn't even know like what school allows or doesn't allow at exams. I'm pretty sure all electronic stuff are banned at uh, exams, at least. Yeah. I, I'm guessing that if the teachers and the principal and all the administrators don't have a problem with it, then it's probably not a problem. Right. I mean, I guess the real thing is, is if, like you said, maybe take it off during a test. Yeah. And then is it a distraction during class time? And then if it's Good the question. answer is no, then... You got no games on this thing, I'll tell you guys right now. Really? No, no games. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, the more you know. <laughs> Xie Wenda is a very fascinating man. Uh, I did a program a long time ago about his life story. He's known as Taiwan's first pilot. But when I was doing the research for that program, I found that there were no books about him. He is the first person in Taiwan to pilot an aircraft, and uh, he had a very amazing life. And uh, until now, no one seems to have written about him. What a missed much. opportunity. Yeah, I mean, there were some old newspaper articles and things but, and stuff online, but that was about it. Like he's the first one to physically fly a plane. Yes, yes. Wow. Um, Is it like a military plane or a well, commercial he, plane? He did everything. Should be, oh. okay. um, he was born in 1901 in Taichung at a time when Taiwan was under Japanese colonial rule. Okay. And the way I remember reading the story was that a traveling there was in those days traveling air stuntmen who came and performed in public, and I think it was an American who was on tour in Asia came and inspired him to okay. take a challenge. At the time, you could only learn in Japan, mm -hmm. uh, and so he went. And did it, and he he did races for prize money, if I remember correctly. Uh, it's been a while, but uh, that's really just the beginning of the story, though. Um, the biography is written by his son, and it's called Wandering Between Two Motherlands. And uh, it's a very apt sort of title. To, to that. It sums up his whole life, basically. Mm. Um, he started out, of course, uh, you know, with uh, under Japanese colonial rule. He studied in Japan, and he trained there. And... Um, it was a big deal for Taiwanese people because, as his son puts it, at the time, the local people were viewed as second-class citizens. And uh, it was a big achievement to be in the air, and uh, uh, he performed for hometown crowds. It was a big hit. And, um, you know, it says that uh, it also impressed the colonial authorities. The governor general at the time wanted to turn his father into a sort of a role model for what a Taiwanese subject ought to be like. Uh, he rebelled, though. Um, he... Uh, got his own airplane due to a subscription. People around Taiwan sent in money for wow. him to buy his first airplane. And, That's uh, crowdfunding, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. For like, it was like, like, a, it was like one, of those, one of those biplane things, a very old-fashioned type of a plane, but it was his. And so uh, what he did with it, he joined the what was then an ongoing uh, trend called the Taiwan Cultural Association. And also he was involved in a kind of a movement for home rule to try and get Taiwan its own parliament. They weren't advocating separation completely. That was a bit taboo he would have gotten in trouble for that but so a pilot a, and, a, and a politician yeah right? well he, he pulled off a very big stunt and it made uh, those in power very angry he traveled to tokyo to deliver yet another petition for taiwanese home rule and he flew over tokyo dropping hundreds of thousands of leaflets criticizing japanese rule here it didn't go over well i, I bet yeah dropping um, stuff over tokyo yes Ooh. and so he decided that uh he had to leave and so he went to china uh, where he had a distinguished career serving uh, 
under an air corps for uh, that was part of the National Revolutionary Army at the time. Mm-hmm. He fought in the Northern Expedition and the Central Plains War. Uh, various, uh, it was a very fractious time in China's history. And uh, he was shot down. And, and he survived all that? He did. Multiple he sur- wars. Into, well. He had serious injuries and could not fly after that for more than three hours at a time because of, of his uh, wounds. Uh, and then things got very bad uh, because though he was on sort of, he was actually fighting, you know, uh, for the government, people felt that Taiwan was ruled by Japan. Therefore, people from Taiwan, some of whom had Japanese passports or residency permits, should be viewed with suspicion. Mm. And so he was, like the title says, caught between two different homelands. And mm. uh, the KMT government uh, was very suspicious of him, especially as tensions between China and Japan grew and eventually it turned into a full-out war. So he was in a dangerous position. The Chinese KMT government's blue shirts were taking people and making them disappear. And uh, it turned out that uh, he was in some danger. By the time Japan and China were fully at war in the 30s, uh, he got into a very tight situation when a Japanese commander tried to make him spy on some Chinese officials and said he showed him a list of people to be executed and he was on the list. So he could either work with Japan and escape execution at the hands of the Chinese or... So it was a very... Betray his own... Yeah. It was a very difficult situation and uh, he had to walk a very tight line. Um, There was a collaborationist government working under the parts of China that had been invaded by Japan and uh, there was a lot of pressure on him. But he at least managed to refuse one thing, which was to become their civil aviation administrator. He refused to do that. So um, for the Japanese, yeah, and for the collaborationist Chinese government under Wang Jingwei, oh, I remember. uh, He refused to take to to do that at least. Uh, So it was just it's a story about a very difficult and storied life, very full of drama, full of color. And no one had ever written about him before. It's almost like the Red Baron. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, like an average person would would go through one of these and you would have enough stories for a lifetime. He's went through all that. It took his son seven years to put this together. He was born in Nanjing in 1930, it says here. Okay. And they later he later came over uh, with the nationalist government. Okay. Uh, and it's a really sad ending to this uh, tale note here. Uh, it's, he said that his wife was the most supportive person during the seven years he spent writing this. And uh, she passed away. Oh. Uh. And he put a copy next to her when she was cremated hoping that it, she would carry it off a copy off to the ancestors and then so they can read it as well and see wow. what they have to say multi-talented uh, has a strong backbone loving man i, I can't say I, anything else I, he had such so many difficult choices too uh i, I hope they make a movie out of this i've yeah. always felt like it deserves it that does treatment. sound like a good film yeah he had a lot of a really hard time did you um, meet him in person when you uh his son no um like i said there wasn't very little i asked around at libraries and mm. no one had heard of him even Wow. He's very, very, not very widely known even in Taiwan today. It's kind of for what he's done. Yeah, I, I think it's just one of those things that kind of has gotten buried under a lot of other stuff over time. So, um, yeah, let's uh, hope uh, this book brings uh, a lot of the stories to public I attention. I want to find a copy. Maybe we can get it. We can translate it into English or something. It's, it deserves to be better known. On a lighter note, Surf's Up, the 2019 Taiwan Open of Surfing is going to be held uh, pretty soon, it looks like. Uh, There's going to be a 15-day period over which it will be held uh, that'll last from November 23rd to December 7th. This is the biggest uh, event yet, apparently. They've got over 300 contestants from 28 countries, which is a record number that are planning to take part. Uh, there is, I'm not sure how much a typical surfing prize goes for, but, uh, I think 
it's not bad. Um, it's been the domestic competition, for instance. It was originally about eight thousand U.S. dollars. It looks like it's been doubled around to encourage more local people to take part as well. And it's the biggest ever prize for a domestic surfing event. It doesn't say what the international uh, challenge will look like. And it looks like it's a very major event, too. They're going to crown, as they have in the last year, the World Junior Championship and the World Longboard Championship. So it's a big, pretty big international event. You may not associate Taiwan with surfing, but the Taidong area on the southeast coast uh, is very well known here, I'd say, at least. For yeah, surfing. definitely. Uh, and the, this, this town in particular, called Jinzun, which is in Donghe Township, is especially good for waves. And that's because it's on along a stretch of coast where the continental shelf is only about 50 to 60 meters from the shore. So it suddenly it drops off very abruptly into the deep sea. And that means that as waves come in, they crest very high. And uh, it's apparently one of the best places to surf around here, especially in autumn and winter, because hmm. we've got the, that northeast monsoon that blows through. And so you've got a combination of that and some big uh, continental shelf. Yeah, uh, it's very strong. Lots of stuff going on. Surf's up. very quickly before we go today another piece of good news uh they've been doing a migratory bird count on taiwan's southern tip at kunding national park for for like decades now it looks like and uh there's been a 31 year high in a number of species uh, chinese sparrowhawks and gray-faced buzzards especially uh apparently only one person did this count it's a retired (laughs) headquarters technician at the national park and he's been doing it for 31 years, so I guess he was the only one counting. So I guess he never really retired. I, guess I don't you know. Need but something to do after retirement. Unofficial right. results found that there was 257,711 Chinese sparrowhawks, and 70,442 gray-faced buzzards. So I I hope he didn't lose count halfway through and have to start all over again. Yeah, how do you <laughs> so, be that precise? I don't know. Uh, they've also tracked a number of other rap- raptor species, including the crested honey buzzard, Japanese sparrowhawk, common kestrel, and those, these are all species that pass through southern Taiwan because they migrate during the autumn towards Southeast Asia. Um, like I said, uh, he seems to be alone in doing this count, and he had to get up at 5 in the morning or had to get to a certain sort of a viewpoint, lookout point yeah. in the park every day at 5 a.m. It doesn't say for how many days in a row. This is after retirement. Wow. So if the early bird gets the worm, <laughs> yeah. the early know. guy gets it's to the, see the birds, birds get the early worms. Huh. I don't know if, if birds of prey eat worms. I think they eat like dead stuff. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, the, why? It, it, I mean, okay, so I guess that our uh, conservation policies help. But this year has been a record-breaking year, especially because no typhoons hit the area during the migration season. And yes, conservation efforts, it says, have played a part, and that's uh, boosted migration numbers in recent years, according to this man. He's a real hero of conservation, Tsai Yirong. I, I wonder if he's like one of those people who's like... I don't know, super good at like with numbers, like Rain Man, you know? Oh, could <laughs> like, be. Like really fo- fixated on this. It sounds like I can't imagine really that amount of concentration. Does. Yeah. I can't imagine that amount of concentration. Okay, 257,710. <laughs> 257. <laughs> all right, well, that's all for today's edition of Here in Taiwan. I'm John Van Trieste. I'm Jake Chen. I'm Leslie Liao. Don't go anywhere just yet. Coming up next, it's Lights, Camera, Asia, and In the Spotlight.
Lights, Camera, Asia. A look at Asian culture and history through the lens of cinema. Hello and welcome to Lights Camera Asia. I'm Jake Chan. After that rather lengthy introduction to the gangster film genre last week, I'm sure a lot of us are pretty excited to explore the gangster cinema in Asia. So, let's waste no more further time and start off this exciting series with a bang. We'll look at a gangster film that puts modern Hong Kong cinema on the map. The film, released in 1996. Is called the Young and Dangerous. The time is the mid 1990s, and a few young men are strolling down a neon lit street of Hong Kong. The leader of them is Hao Nan, a tall, slender young man with long hair. He's asking whether his friends have all gathered for what he calls, quote, something important. His buddies tell him that everyone is here except for a guy named Chicken. The lens then shifts to another location. A young man with short hair that's been dyed white walks out of a nightclub and bids goodbye to two ladies. This is the man nicknamed Chicken, the number two guy in the clique. The men eventually gather in a group. And begin to discuss their plans for the mission at hand. Hao Nan, the leader, talks the group through their plan. Apparently, they are targeting Ba Bi, the leader of a rival gang. Hao Nan has already done the scouting work and knows that the man often visits the spa he owns every Tuesday evening. And this is the moment where he has the least number of gangsters in his surroundings and. Hao Nan decides to pick this moment for an ambush. One of Hao Nan's entourage intentionally makes a scene in the public shower section, attracting the attention of Bobby's gang members. They soon surround him and try to teach him a lesson. And it is at this moment that Hao Nan approaches Bobby, who is now relatively unprotected. Hao Nan slams his head with a hair dryer and then proceeds to choke him with the wire. What proceeds is a series of bloody fights. Bobby is not the head of a gang for nothing. He's quite a strong man, and he managed to break himself free from Hao Nan and his company. He runs off onto the road, and Hao Nan's gang follows him right behind. The few young men still couldn't get the upper hand to the rival gang leader, who is now wounded and is desperately trying to break free. And just when Bobby is about to run off, Chicken runs over to lend a hand, or shall I say, a knife. He stabs him and finally stops him in his tracks. Hao Nan and his boys jump on top of him and help Chicken finish the job. This, at least in the film, looks like a well-executed plan by several stylish, good-looking young gangsters. <laughs> <laughs> 
but let's tell things like it is. At the core, this is basically premeditated murder, and it happens in public. However, for these few 20-something-year-old men, this almost looked like another day in the office. Days later, the young gangsters are seen singing karaoke with their boss, Mr. B, to celebrate the successful elimination of a rival gang boss. Before we continue on with the story, it's hard not to ask the question that's probably in everyone's mind at this point. How come this group of 20-year-olds are not in school or working on a job, but are out there making a bloody mess? And what's even more worrying is that they all treat this as if it is just a part of their daily life. With that question in mind, let me bring you to the film's opening sequence. Young and Dangerous opens with a shot on a slum neighborhood in Hong Kong with a title card that reads, The Hong Kong government needed to scramble and relocate a large number of families after a fire devastated the Xixiawei district. The families have since been relocated in a densely populated and poorly managed neighborhood. Over the years, the neighborhood becomes a hotbed for young hooligans as a whole generation of them grow up with little education or adult supervision. And this is where Hao Nan and his friends grow up. When 12-year-old Hao Nan was playing soccer one day, he ran into Quan, a local gangster who comes around to give him a hard time. The two group clash and it quickly escalates. After all, Quan and these guys are adults and they give Hao Nan's friends a pretty bad beating. It is at this moment that Mr. B passes by and steps in to save the day. Hanan tells him that he'd like to follow him in his gang. And that's how he and his friends get initiated in the world of organized crime. We could say that he accidentally got involved in the world that where he is today is the consequence of a hot-headed decision that he made when he was a teenager. However, it is pretty clear now that Hanan and his fellow gang members are having a pretty good time now that they're in their 20s and none of them are showing much sense of repentance. In a way, these young men are all products of broken families and malfunctioning social infrastructure that fails to provide them with proper guidance and emotional outlet that these teenagers so desperately need. See, instead of having positive, upstanding role models to look up to, such as their fathers and uncles, they grew up in the presence of many gangsters. And since the neighborhood they live in is much like many other turfs that are controlled by different gangs, they witness gang fights and realizes that the gangsters are the ideal model for men. And while we're on the subject of gangs, it is worth pointing out that Haonan and his crew are the lower tier members of an imaginary gang called Hongxing. It is clearly modeled after the Triad, which is a transnational gang largely made up by Chinese-speaking populations in China and around the world. So, back to the movie. Hanan's crew has completed their, well, for lack of a better word, their assignment of assassinating the leader of a rival gang. And now, they're having a rather good time. 
But unbeknownst to any of them, Quan, yes, that very same guy who bullied Hao Nan when he was a teenager, is a good friend of Bobby, the boss leader who got killed, and he has begun to plot revenge for his pal. And as it turns out, Quan is a very cunning and vengeful person, much more so than anyone could have anticipated. So he managed to somehow isolate Hao Nan with the girlfriend of his buddy's chicken and drug the pair so they would hook up. He then sets up an ambush on Hao Nan and his friends. When Hao Nan wakes up from what really feels like a bad dream, what awaits him is not a normal barroom brawl, but a total bloodbath. Hao Nan and company suddenly get surrounded by a few dozen gangsters, all equipped with baseball bats and knives, and are trying to end their lives. Hao Nan had to fight and claw and scratch with every might to exit the fray, but while he managed to survive, one of his bodies get killed in the fight. And by the time the group regathers themselves, Chicken had found out that Hao Nan has had an affair with his girlfriend, and the two have a total fallout. And that's not all. Quan has arranged his people to kill and bury Miss B's whole family, including his wife and two children. When Hao Nan wakes up again, his life is entirely ruined. His reputation has been tarnished, and now that word has gotten out about him sleeping with a friend's girlfriend, he is considered to have broken the code and is no longer part of the gang. He's forced to go into hiding since many of Quan's henchmen are still after his head. And his best buddy, Chicken, has pretty much severed ties with him and has fled Hong Kong. His boss, Mr. B, has been murdered, and no one will vouch for him and his friends in the upper echelon of the Hongxin gang anymore. Only two of his buddies and his girlfriend visit him on a regular basis in his hideout to help take care of him and he himself is severely wounded. It's not an exaggeration to say that his entire life is in the shambles within a number of days. His friends, family, boss, and career is gone. And the only thing he can do at this point is to slowly recover from his many injuries while trying to keep his seizing anger under control. So what is he to do now that he's been stripped of his status and prospect? Would he get a chance to reunite with his buddies and avenge his boss? How does he redeem himself from all the damage, including that to his reputation within his gang? These are all the questions that Hao Nan, as a young and once uprising young member of the gang, has to find answers for. And that's also what we're going to see in the following episode where we cover the second half of The Young and Dangerous. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and this is just a small peek into the curtain of the world of Hong Kong's gang movie. Well, The Young and Dangerous and its many sequels is certainly one of the most famous movie series in the genre. In the future episodes, we'll see other films that came after it that even, in my argument, bested in terms of quality. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Jake Chen, 
and I'll talk to you next week in Lights, Camera, Asia. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. Alyssa Chu is founder and CEO of Anchor Taiwan. When she went to college in Canada, she fell in love with studying economics because she said there's more to economics, like it's also about human psychology. Alyssa is also a photographer and a globe trotter. She took one year off in between jobs and traveled the world, especially to those less traveled places, since she figured that she wouldn't be going to those places during regular vacations if she were on a job. She took photographs and interviewed people there doing what they do every day. Today, we will get to what is Anchor Taiwan, but first, we're going to find out whether she ever thought about making photography her career. I once thought that might be a possibility because I had this sort of like romantic fantasy of being a war zone photographer, uh-huh. and I think <laughs> doing that and, and that I guess comes back to this sense of justice and fairness, mm. wanting to tell stories for the world, for people, things that people should know more about. But I think during my world travels, there were incidents where I realized that I'm probably not the most suited for that. But you did actually、um, kind of like took part in some contest because you won this photography documentary thing, right?、Mm-hmm. At the time, one of my stories was selected into this book called "The Other One Hundred." It's an open call for competitions with photography. Um, photographers from around the world with stories to highlight different founders. Like very often, you know, we have like Forbes thirty under thirty, Fortune five hundred, the most, the you know, like richest one hundred people, so on and so forth. But the idea is that there are a lot of other people's stories that still worth so、sort of、like sharing and highlighting. And I did this story with this bakery in Bosnia、oh. that got selected into this competition. Okay, let's talk about Anchor Taiwan.、Mm. What is it exactly? It's a hard question to answer, <laughs> <laughs> but I would say on the surface,、uh, we have two major parts. The first part is our signature entrepreneurial residency program. The other side is what we started this year with an early stage investment arm. So the first part, essentially, we believe that there should be a better way for cross border exploration, either for business development or for personal career progression, to really understand different cultures. Culture, industries from different parts of the world, and in this case, in Taiwan. So essentially, what I design、um, 
is this one month program to really bring over top entrepreneurs and tech professionals from around the world to come to Taiwan. And depending on their needs and their interests, we curate different events, training sessions, company visits, so on and so forth into this one month period of time. From this year, we also started having a shorter period of um, program for business or political leaders who might not be able to come for such an extended um, long period. Mm -hmm. And the investment arm is the idea to identify and invest into some of the top technology and teams that we bring over. So essentially adding an additional catalyst to bring the world to Taiwan. For some people, they just really wanted to come here to immerse themselves in a different culture, to understand different industry, so that they might uh, want to build their next big idea for mm -hmm. their company, or they might want to take that back home to then you know, like further their career. So how's this one-month program? You said this entrepreneurial mm -hmm. uh, residency program. How many people are involved in the program at a time? Mm. It's not one-on-one, right? It's no, it's, but it's very boutique because each person, when we select into them into the program, we actually do a lot of work before we even bring them over. So typically, our typical program size is in between 5 to 10 companies or 5 to 10 funders. And they go through a very rigorous selection process. First, they apply into the program. If they get selected, then uh, a lot of preparation and business development preparation starts before they arrive. So say, for example, a founder might have this idea that, hmm, I heard that there are a lot of software engineers in Taiwan, and I potentially would like to build a team over there. Or a founder might have this need that, hmm, I have these hardware products, and I need a manufacturing partners to help me realize my dream. Mm -hmm. So each funder, they have different needs and interests. So once we select them into the program, then we kick off our preparation and our connections with our partners here to prepare their soft landing here in, in Taiwan. I'm thinking that it must have been an amazing job for you to build up a really solid base here in Taiwan because you're trying to connect all these people abroad with the locals here. But you have to first get to know the locals, mm. and these locals have to trust you. Yeah. Yeah, it's very crucial for us to show our commitment with the locals. And that's also why we see ourselves as an ecosystem builder. So it's not like we come here and all of a sudden we just tell you that, hey, let's do business. I, I believe that that's not what... Um, how it should work. So we spend a lot of time building our communities. We want to show that we are here to bring value also for the local communities and for the local entrepreneurs. And that's why over and over again, we'll throw events to have sharing sessions for very often founders that we bring over for them to share their expertise or perspectives that they can bring from Silicon Valley, from Europe, from many different parts of the world. And it's this type of win-win cross-border collaboration that we want to cultivate. Mm. Wow, that's great. How old is Anchor Taiwan now? We had our first cohort in June 2017. So okay. now we have finished eight cohorts, including one shorter one with business political leaders um, that lasts for 10 days. Okay. So cohorts as in like... Each success. batch is like uh, one month. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah. Right, right. Our signature program is one month. Okay, yeah. right. And how many of these programs do you have in a year? Usually about three. 
okay. three one month program, and we'll have shorter one, usually sort of like tailor made for corporates for a shorter period of time. That's saying you know, like sometimes two to three days, sometimes ten days for a very particular business development needs. Two to three days, you don't get to know Taiwan in two three days. <laughs> you don't. That's why I personally really love the one month setup. Yeah. However, unfortunately, you know, like very often for corporate executive or business political leaders, they just、sure. really cannot be here. If I could, I would. Right.、Know. Okay. You came up with the name Anchor Taiwan. Yes. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> <I hope> so, <laughs> you know, you hope that they once they come, they got to know Taiwan, they really put the anchor here in Taiwan. Yes. Yes. Yeah.、Um, bringing the world to Taiwan. Going back on how you used to have a lot of fears. Are you still faced with fears? I do. I think I still try to tackle that every day. It seems like you have、uh, a lot of passion and compassion for people,、mm. um, whoever they are, coming from abroad or even like local. That I've read about some interviews about you, and it seems like you're a very down to earth person. <laughs> you know, even though you're a successful, you know, women entrepreneur and everything, but the thing is that you're very down to earth. You seem to really、uh, have that personable personality. Personable person. What what word is that? <laughs> you know, with people that、mm. you that you come in contact with. That's how I get the feeling about you. Am I right? I, I mean, would hope so. Yeah, and I think that's probably in a way related to my training or my passion as a photographer, especially around documentary photography. Because you know, like one thing I think very important for successful documentary photography is that. You need to be able to build that connections with anybody. Like, say, for example, when I am in a foreign country, when I am trying to shoot a story in a local market, I need to be able to instantly build that trust and that connection with someone that I may not speak the same language with. And very often these days. I think one of my superpower is I I really can speak to pretty much anyone. I can have a conversation with them, and I think largely because I have this really genuine. Curiosity for human、right. beings, for other people. I yeah, I think I totally know what you mean.、Um, I'm always curious about my guests. <laughs> I go on my program <laughs> from inside out and everything.、Mm. But so, how many successful these courts that you have? I mean, how many successful cases?、Mm. Have you had in these last what two three years? Yeah, we have quite a few amazing stories that I love.、Oh. So out of the seven cohorts, seven signature one month cohorts that we hosted, four of them we have got founders who ev- either met the co-founders and. Eventually, move to Taiwan to set up their companies. Oh, great! Or yeah, set up a team here to work with Taiwanese talents, or to set up an office here to work with、uh, manufacturers here in Taiwan, or to raise funding here in Taiwan. And it's really through a lot of these stories. Like I have constantly entrepreneurs who came to me and say, "Hey, Lisa, you know, like Anchor Taiwan changed my life." Because some of these people, it's their first time in Taiwan, and or or first time in Asia even, and through this program, and you know, again, this is not only us. We really rely on a lot of partners and good friends out there to do this together. Because to showcase what Taiwan has got for the world, this is not possible through either one person, one platform, one company. Really, this is、uh, a joint effort. And because of that, we see、um, these foreign founders now living in Taiwan. Who knows? Eventually, my might settle here and、uh-huh. growing the team. And we would like to have more, more and more of that here.、Mm. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. 
let's assume that this is a platform to really, you know, uh, promote Taiwan. What would you say that's great about Taiwan? That people should really consider this as the anchor. Yeah, there <laughs> anchor are so、place. many awesome things about Taiwan that I think the world, to a large extent, still overlooks. Uh, first of all, the people here is like brilliant, and、uh, we have amazing talent for both software and hardware. Which is actually, when you think about it, it's not that easy to find with talent that process like both sides of the skill sets. And in terms, when it comes to design, when it comes to creative talent, we have a lot of those here in Taiwan as well. So you know, like for entrepreneurs looking to build a team to help. You with your products and your services. This is really one of the top places to come. But in addition to that, Taiwan is very unique in a sense that we have a huge sector with small medium businesses, a lot of hidden champions, traditional industries. Many of these people, they're、um, potentially your partners to work with, especially when it comes to hardware manufacturing. But in addition to that. A lot of this can also be your potential clients, especially for people who are building solution solutions to disrupt the traditional industries. So that's also a huge area to really look into. And we have heard over and over stories about some of this initially maybe kind of like strategic partnership relationship turns into a strategic investment relationships. And we totally believe that there will be more and more of this sort of like coming. And in addition to that, Taiwan is also a great test market. It's a great place for、uh, people who wants to run their pilots. You know, it's、mm. big enough with 23 million of population and very sophisticated、um, target audience, but you know, small enough for for you to have things under control. So for early stage entrepreneurs, it's one of the top destinations for you to test out a few things before you launch in a full scale. Wow, you've just listed all the great factors, really. That There are many, many more.、Realized. I can go on, on, on. <laughs> <laughs> on, sure, but that's enough to really inspire me already. But、um, that that is amazing. Yeah, now I realize that I thought that you are a techie person,、mm. but then I realized that actually, you know, with an economics major, but actually, you just realized that there's this great potential in technology side. Uh, in Taiwan, that people should take advantage of. Yeah, I don't really have a really deep technical background, even though I did go through, you know, quantitative trading、um, with training more on the economics and math side, but not really in terms of、um, engineering. Like I know a bit of financial engineering, but not the tech engineering. Engineering, I see anchor or myself more as a bridge. So I think very often it's about whether you have. Someone who speaks the language from both sides, technology and business, and being that translator to basically tell the stories to the world. Because very often, what I see is we have this amazing technology.、Uh, we have so many patents, say、mm. for example.、Mm. But how do we tell the story? How do we actually have a relatable examples when we want to tell our, say for example, our foreign entrepreneurs? How amazing and how established this Taiwanese company is! Very often, if you just tell them, you know, like in terms of their revenue and all that, that might not be that easy for them to relate. A big role or mission that I see with myself is to really always find that relevant parts to make the translation for both sides to understand. It's really been great talking to Elisa. We need more people like you, Thank and you. you know, doing all these great things to really promote Taiwan and. You know, we do aim to globalize Taiwan and all that, but it takes like what are the practical steps of doing that? And people like you is 
kind of like the pioneer of that. I think. Thank so, you. Yeah. There's still a lot of things that we need to do and we want to do, but uh, step by step, and very thankful for all of the partners and friends along yeah. the way. Great, great. Thank you, Alyssa.、Mm-hmm. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In Southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kilohertz. Again, that's in Southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kilohertz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to PO Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's PO Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me/radiotaiwanintl. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me/radiotaiwanintl for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. Thank you.